Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Guardian. When you think about sunlight or other forms of light, what comes to mind? The start of a new day? Or the redness as it hits your eyelids on a warm sunny afternoon? For some people though, it takes on an altogether more sinister role. Hello. And one of those people is John. He describes when he has had too much light, he will burn. Posted some pipe cleaners if you find them. John Capellas is the subject of How to Make a Pearl, our latest documentary film here at The Guardian. I need cereal. John has also lived in complete darkness for the last 10 years due to an allergy to all spectrums of light, whether natural or artificial. But it wasn't always like this. When I landed on that aspect of John's story, What I didn't want to do was represent the HIV-AIDS conflict or or, or, uh, initial part of the epidemic with images of men wasting away, uh, not because I want to deny that that part of the history, but because that wasn't the part that John was describing. He led a relatively stereotypical life with a wife and two kids. Until, alongside a lot of good times, he became entwined in one of the 20th century's most tragic stories. Federal health officials consider it an epidemic, yet you rarely hear a thing about it. But what led to John's crippling condition? How was he trying to cope with his own situation? And what, if anything, can John's story tell us about what it means to be human? A window into, you know, time in the light. You realise we're an incredibly resilient species. And we can kind of contain and hold so much. But at the same time, a lot of the narratives that I see both, not so much in the doc space, but at least in the, in the fiction space, they never deal with what happens after the traumatic event. Uh, I just don't know how he is sinking. I'm Charlie Phillips. Welcome. To Doc Tales. Last year, I was sent a link to an almost finished cut of How to Make a Pearl by film producer Minette Nelson. I knew nothing about the film before I hit play, but was immediately pulled into John's strange world and his wonderful way of describing his lives past and present. I also liked the challenge of releasing a film that mostly takes place in the dark lit only by a headlamp, Hello. all of which led me to the filmmaker Jason Hanasek. My name is Jason Hanasek, and I directed the documentary short How to Make a Pearl. And to celebrate the release of How to Make a Pearl, I decided to have a chat with Jason and explore his filmmaking process. So Jason, do you want to start by just telling us a little bit about what How to Make a Pearl is? Uh, 
what it is uh i mean i guess we'll start <laughs> it's such a it's such a wild question i mean it's a how to make a pearl at its base is about a is a film that's about a man that's had to live in the dark for the last decade but it's really not a film that's that rests solely on just exploring that idea it actually looks at how the time that john capellas the main character in the film um how his time in the light may or may not have affected uh his having to go and live in the dark for the past decade great i think that's a really clear description of it it is a really hard film to sum up in two sentences i think that's fair to say (laughs) um let's so i want to start by just talking a little bit about the process of embarking on the film and practically making the film um john comes across in the film as being a relatively solitary man at the moment. Um, I'm interested in you talking a bit about how you came across John um, and maybe how you formed that relationship with him and got him to agree to be in the film. Sure, yeah. So I was working on a, a, a separate project and my best friend knows John uh, really well. And he had told John about about this project and he said or John said to him you know I really want to meet both Jason and the man that was the subject of that project and um, so my best friend whose name is Jason as well uh, invited me over to John's house and I was a little skeeved out to be honest with you a little nervous I I don't really like being in the dark Uh, I don't want watch horror films as a as just like a thing so the idea of going in to meet someone that lives in complete darkness freaked me out you know the way that you go and meet john is it's a really long not really long but it's a fairly long corridor uh that slowly you know it's like a gradation it slowly goes into darkness um and at the end john is generally there waiting for you with a with a little flashlight and so you sometimes see part of him kind of in a sh- in the shadows or you see you know a little a little circle of light and you follow that until until you meet John probably within i don't know 3 to 4 minutes uh i found myself telling John things that i had never uh, told anybody there was something about the stillness and the quiet of being in the space with him and his just his presence and I calmed down and got really curious about who this person was. Uh, At the time, I had no intentions of making a film about him. I just wanted to get to know him. I love drawing. Uh, It's like my my window, a window into, you know, time in the light. And then in 2015, I had to make a last minute project for a class that I was in. And I decided I was going to make it about John. And, um, you know, it's like this 90 second, maybe, maybe a little bit more piece. Not very good. It's a transcription of John's life. It's not a translation. This is Ira. Uh, and these are his partners, Doug and Terry. Uh, but the center part was curious, uh, and interesting to me because we started to dive in just a little bit into his past. And I, at that point learned, uh, that he had been in a, uh, marriage to a woman and had a family and all of these other types of aspects and I, I realized that wow this is this 
like most lives, you know, it's an onion. You're just kind of constantly peeling back layers. But there was something really fascinating about the life that John had led and was living. One day when I was there without her, I met a guy who wanted to have sex with me and made that plain. And, and I was attracted to him. And I said, I, I, would, I was interested. And would he come home and meet my wife? True to Jason's own unfolding relationship with John, the film slowly peels back the layers of John's life, making many revelations along the way, including his coming out as a gay man. Were you trying to present that as just another fact of his life, or were you specifically trying to say something about the life of a gay man at that time, about the leather scene? Was that a conscious thing you were trying to talk about? I, f- I, f- I should say first that I'm a gay man, and I had grown up, I, I was born in 81, and grew up with gay men dying of HIV and AIDS all around me, mainly because my nana, who was a nurse and then moved into pain management, met all of these gay men who had been abandoned by their families. And so she kind of adopted them into our family, and they became my uncles. And I was completely confused at the time because I wasn't given context and perspective of what was going on in the larger culture of all of these men dying. But I would go to holiday parades and my sister and I would climb all over them, you know, and they're in their wheelchairs. And my Nana had enough medical knowledge to know that, you know, we were we were both completely safe. And it was also probably from a psychological perspective, helping them both mentally and also maybe even physically. So when I landed on that aspect of John's story, what I didn't want to do was represent the HIV AIDS conflict or, 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 or uh, initial part of the epidemic with images of men wasting away, uh, not because I want to deny that, ex- that part of the history, but because that wasn't the part that John was describing. The part that John was telling me was what he had lost, which were the stories of him and his friends in the middle of their sexual prime, you know, and, and life, basically, suddenly having to intersect with massive amounts of death. I met Ira one day at the Country Western Bar, which was called the Rawhide back then. And he was dressed in full leather because he was only there for a little bit. He was going to go over to a leather bar, the Eagle. And uh, I saw him across the room and, and, and sort of had a, had a response and he looked at me. And so we ended up walking and meeting in the middle somewhere. After talking with him for a while, I remember thinking, I didn't want to just think about him uh, sexually, he was interesting and fun to talk to. So we set up a date and uh, started seeing each other. And in the film, I just recently went through all the transcripts of that I uh, of the audio interviews, and I didn't include this because it didn't make sense narratively. But the home video from uh, a, a vacation that he that John took with a couple of his friends, that was to celebrate one of those gentlemen's uh, 40th birthdays, and he kind of spent a significant amount of money to fly all of his friends down to Mexico for this trip because he didn't think he was going to make it to 41. You have to remember his partner had just died of AIDS too. So he, you know, he it wasn't just, you know, he was worried about that. He had been through the whole shebang. They had been together for 20 years. He's one of the guys in the uh, 
in the leather jacket. He's the first leather jacket up there. And then Terry is the second and Ira's the third. And I wanted in the film to kind of capture that that joy while we're hearing about what John has lost and then going into to uh, almost immediately this love story that, that has been developing over the course of the film with his, with his uh, husband, uh, a man that eventually became his husband, Ira, and how his mother, Ira's mother, treated both Ira and John during the last week of Ira's life. There's an interesting dissonance there, isn't there, which, you know, which I think you're hinting at there behind the fact that people might approach this thinking it's a it's a sad story, man living in the dark, talking about his past. But a lot of what we see is very positive. And we were you trying to kind of create that dissonance? Well, I'm tr- I yeah. I mean, I think that we oftentimes when we're dealing when we're talking with when someone hasn't experienced a significant amount of trauma. They, I, I, I'm going to use my mother as an example. She's probably going to hate this, but she she'll oftentimes say things like, "Oh, I just, I, I just don't know how they do that. I just can't. I, I just couldn't." And actually, you can. I mean, it's I, I've just worked with so many people that have experienced trauma, significant amounts, and myself that you you realize we're an incredibly resilient species, and we can kind of contain and hold so much, but at the same time. A lot of the narratives that I see both, not so much in the doc space, but at least in the in the fiction space, they never deal with what happens after the traumatic event. They kind of lead to the traumatic event and then the third act of the film is, is you know, kind of closing it up and there's no real investigation of how do you actually live with this experience that's happened. And so in many ways, how to make a pearl within the first, what, minute and a half two minutes of the film you learn what's happened he's had to live in the dark for the for the last decade and there's two timelines that suddenly start which is the present day of how is he managing to to navigate this space and then you get thrown into the past and you come all the way back up into the present i've worked with uh, veterans that have um experienced you know been in conflict zones and oftentimes they'll they'll explain to me that they're in both the present and the past at the same time so was there a way this was what i was thinking about when editing the film and making the film um is there a way to to simulate that experience because john is moving between both of those places so there's a there's an interesting pitch thing that happens uh at the end of the second home video where uh, John's child is crying. And in the sound mixing place, we kind of tried to, to match the pitch of the sound of John's crying with the sound of the doorbell. When you're moving between the two scenes, they feel blended not only for the seamless aspect, but also. I'm not. I'm not trying to say that John was thinking about his child crying at that moment, but that we're both in the place of the past and the present moment at the same time. So that's the goal. As Jason mentioned, 
This clash between the past and the present is often something seen in patients diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, who are often unable to disentangle what's happening now from what happened at the time of their trauma. I mean, when I first started drawing the circles on my wall... For John, however, this bridge between his past and his present almost seems desired, enthusiastically sought after. So the, the way that he uses art in his life is, seems to be to allow him to be in two places at once because he's very firmly in his, uh, in his place, drawing on the walls, but he's also depicting his past there. So did you feel like he was using that art as a form of therapy? Well, absolutely, and he said that explicitly. Prior to doing the leather jackets on the wall, which we see in the film, he had done kind of abstraction and flowers. And it's I, I think it, most viewers don't catch it on the first viewing of the film, but if you look at the images John's looking at underneath the microscope, which is the only way that he can garden in the space in the dark, um, and that's to build these kind of bacteria gardens, there seems to be a relationship between the abstract drawings that he's making on the wall and the images he's seeing underneath the microscope. So that one, it's a little hard to say that's a past-present kind of space or, or, or conversation. Now, the leather jackets, absolutely. I mean, that feels like an elegy that he's kind of creating to these three men, one of whom was his husband and, and the other two are his husband's former lovers. Uh, when you start... Uh working on pain and you're covering the pain up it's you know you're creating like an oyster a pearl with that little grain of sand that's irritating it and they cover it up with some substance to make it uh, not hurt the reason why i was able to get the beginning of that mural was because he had apparently sat in front of that mural for about six to nine months prior to starting it and he said, when I asked him about it, he said he would just sit in front of it and, and couldn't bring himself to start the process of drawing, to literally kind of bringing them back to life with the circles, uh, or at least this, this version of life. And one day I, I just asked him, I said, you know, um, what's going on with the, with the leather jackets? Because at that point I had seen the actual photograph and I was so taken with that, with that image, just from a kind of gay history perspective. I mean, it's like it's such a classic San Francisco leather or just a classic leather image from the, the queer community. And it was like something had snapped. And I think I think what had happened, and other friends have kind of confirmed this with conversations that they have had with him, was he was able to do it because he wasn't alone, because he spends about 90 to 95% alone in the space. And so the, the camera served as both a witness and also um, almost like a, maybe like a security blanket that he wasn't going to have to bring these men back to life by himself, that there was going to be somebody there to watch the process uh, with him. I kind of love that the camera helped to, do, to bring that out because normally we think about the camera altering a situation in a negative way, but in this way it seemed to, to have been a really positive opportunity. Every now and then, I will, you know, walk around a corner from this part of my room to that or walk back in from the front of the house and uh, 
think, oh my God, my life is weird, just totally crazy. And then other times, you know, I've, it's, I've figured out ways to normalize it and it, it doesn't feel that weird. So in the film we see that John is in the process of purling and he describes it as the process of trying to expose things to the light and try and uncover things. Did you feel like this is a process he is on where he's trying to deal with the past, he's trying to uncover things through his art um, and ultimately get to that point, like with purling, where you're exposing things to the light and ultimately this might mean that he can get back into the light through this process? He's never said to me that purling was about the opening and the pearl suddenly being exposed. And I love that he has chosen this metaphor because that the next step would be that the pearl would then be seen, you know, would be kind of out in the light. I love that that hasn't been said to me consciously because I think maybe that I don't think I know that this is a desire of his. For him, the purling is more when at the start of the filming, prior to John really starting this new type of trauma therapy, I would occasionally walk into the apartment and he would be pacing in the uh, and the apartment's not terribly large I should be clear so he would find the one space where he could pace back and forth and it was you kind of know that they have like cheetah runs I think in zoos where they can allow a cheetah to to kind of just get the energy out so to speak and he would find his run and would just pace back and forth and I would walk into the apartment and he wouldn't even recognize that I was there I mean he was lost in his own thoughts and then I would ask him what was going on and he was like I'm having a really 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 tough day and in that what I came to understand was that was the grit and those were the memories that were serving as the grit that he was trying in the process of quote-unquote purling to make something with so that that grit didn't hurt any longer so that it was getting from inside of his head and his body and kind of coming outside what I live on here I have a feeling of hope that I will get out of here, but uh, that feeling of hope also carries me. If I don't get out, you know, I don't get out. In some ways it's on the wall, in other ways it's in the music that he's writing. I've lived enough lives and recreated myself enough times, I, I think I get amazed at life and the crazy things that happen to humans, but it's, if this is, you know, gonna be my life, I can do this. Let me back up for a second, actually, because when I first started making the film, I started exploring the Orpheus myth and the Lazarus myth, because both of those cases, you know, they go into an underworld of sorts. And I, I wondered, you know, was John having to go into the underworld of his past, into the places of death and his past and pain, and having to bring Eurydice back to the present, you know, up to the top, to kind of let that no longer affect him or hurt his heart. That, uh, left me his piano. And I think that that's, the, that's what purling is, is to bring things that are stuck really way down deep to make something beautiful so that those can come back up. So to bring the grit from just being this really irritating thing in his life uh, and hurtful thing and make something really beautiful so that he can Spread can see, so to speak. Keep this body alive To breathe 
touch your heart of gold to watch my I don't think I've processed all of the things that happened in those that that decade sort of the 90s I mean it started in the 80s but the the mass die-off was for me really it happened in the late 80s and 90s special thanks to Jason Hanasek if you're interested in watching how to make a pearl it's out today on the Guardian documentaries just head to theguardian.com forward slash documentaries. This episode of The Story was presented by me, Charlie Phillips, and was produced by Max Sanderson. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to The Story on your favourite podcatcher. And if you have ideas or feedback send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com. Until next time. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.